everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning. Um, I have a major victory that I wanted to share with you, just a personal victory of mine from this week. Uh, Ashley and I have been married for 17 years. We have three kids, and on Friday night, we went on a date. It was awesome. <laughs> we did it, you guys. We did it. We had somebody watch our kids. We went to a, a place called a restaurant where other people make food, and they bring it to you. We talked, like, together. It was amazing. It was so much fun. And I was reminded as, as uh, I was thinking about this message for the day, the novelty of a date. Like, they're so fun. Dates are so fun. And it doesn't just have to be a romantic date. It could, like, just hanging out with a person one-on-one is just, is awesome. And I think that uh, it's really interesting when you roll back the tape and go, what's the, how did we get here? Have we, have we always dated? What's, what's the history of dating? So let me start by saying, the views expressed in this historical update are not those of Discovery Christian Church. Okay, ready? Okay, here's how dating got started. 200 years ago, it didn't exist. And really, until we get into the late 19th century, think late 1800s, there, there was just not a concept for this. Like, if, especially on the romantic side, if two people were going to get together, it was going to be because their parents, their families, were talking about, like, what's the financial situation? What's, what's the right relationship? What helps us in where our family's at socially? Like, it was this whole family collective thing that would get you there. And then... Starting right around the end of the 1900s, things started to shift a little bit. The word date first appeared in a newspaper article at the end of the 19th century. And the reason why they chose the title date, like isn't that funny that we just call it, the the reason why is because it's literally a date in the calendar. Like that's why we call it dating is because like what's more romantic than saying, hey, you're in my iCal. Like... That's, that's the best we could do. That's as romantic as it got, but, but that's where it came from. And so in the early 1900s, for the first time, we have gentlemen who are reaching out saying, I want to begin a relationship with you. I don't know where it's going to go. And the way that socially that, then that became approached is he would tell her family, usually her parents, like, hey, I would like to come over. And he would come and he would sit in the living room with most of the family just around. And he, it was really just a family visit. But this was the early stages of dating. He'd just get to meet her and her family, everybody. <laughs> it's a little bit intimidating. And, and there would always be a chaperone. There would have to be. Because at this day and age, the only time you would ever see a woman and a man alone together is either if they were married or if there was like a prostitution thing going on. The views expressed in this historical update are not those of Discovery Christian Church. And, and it was wild. And, and that's really where all, all of this dating idea began. As a funny aside, what also began as this idea of dating began was the idea of makeup. Makeup really didn't exist outside of the theater until the early 1900s. And part of that was because now you've got all of these young women who are trying to, like, the scene's changing, and Maybelline is running, rubbing their hands together like, here we go. The views expressed in this historical update. If you went around on the street with makeup on with another man, you would be arrested because the only people who did that were prostitutes. 
the views expressed. This is the, this is the history of dating, though. This is so crazy. And so then in the early 1900s, as things start to catch up to today, now we have people that are going around. They're hanging out together. In the 1920s, the term going out became a better replacement for the word date. Young people were becoming more independent from their parents. And there were these things that were starting to happen. As young people were becoming more independent, the capitalistic market said, hey, we need to create spaces for them. So what, there's this new thing called an amusement park. And this happened in the early 1920s. Something called a dance. We would just start hosting dances. Back in the day, it was like you would just have a barn dance. It was amazing. And there was this burgeoning idea, this, this wild thing called a movie theater. And those started to go haywire right around the 1920s. So all of a sudden, this idea of what do you do on a date? Do you sit and talk with her dad as he's polishing a shotgun in his living room? Let's go to a movie. That sounds, that sounds preferable. Let's, let's go do that. After World War II, as telephones became more and more popular, it became more common to call somebody on the phone. And dates were now, at this point, not happening in private really at all. They were happening more in public places. Men were always the ones who paid for these dates post-World War II. In the 1970s, I think this took a major turn as they invented something called the coiled telephone cord. Some of you remember this? You could stretch a piece of piano wire basically all the way through every room in your house trapping anyone in any room that you wanted to while you tried to have a private conversation with a boyfriend or girlfriend. And then we begin to arrive at today. And some of you who are from some of the older generations, you would not recognize dating at all today. Because in the 1990s, there was this additional thing, factor, that had a massive impact on dating. It was called the internet. Apps started trailing right behind the internet. And all of a sudden today, the thrill of getting to know somebody for the first time on a first date is past. Because usually by the time you're rolling in on a first date, you know all this stuff about them. It's a, it's a funny thing, dates. Why do, we, why do we go on dates? Why do you go on dates? And again, it doesn't have to be romantic dates. One of the favorite dates that I have in my calendar is daddy dates. I love taking my kids out on a Saturday afternoon just saying, hey, anywhere you want to go within the state of Colorado, <laughs> let's grab lunch, let's journal together, let's just talk about how you're doing. I love daddy dates. I love dates with my wife. I like, I like going to grab a beer or a coffee with a friend with no agenda other than, hey, how are you? What's going on? Call in college friends one at a time. And as we jump into today's message, we're talking about solitude, which, depending on your understanding and your own definition, might feel very different than this idea of a date. So one of the questions as we kick into today is, what is solitude? How do you define it? How do you spend that kind of time? If you were to Google search solitude, it's really interesting. Right away, you would find, if you just look at the images, you'd find pictures of people on mountaintops. There's this one that I love, this dude in a kayak in the middle of like a, a foggy lake, and he's just by himself. There's a really disturbing one of this woman fully clothed in the bathtub, like just weeping, like <laughs> solitude. Like the, it's, it's interesting, like just the spectrum of what solitude means to us. And I think experientially, sometimes the word isolation can be confused for the word solitude. And I think they're different, and we're gonna dive into that today. If you would type into Google, what are places of solitude? I think this is where it gets the most fun because there is an actual place that you should go if you want to experience solitude. And I think you know exactly where I'm talking about. There's only one place on the entire planet 
Um, I have a picture of it, actually. It's, it's called the Fortress of Solitude. This is where you go. Um, this, is, this is actually, I think, a, a half step closer to what we would say, what is solitude? This is where Superman would go to remind himself of who he was and where he came from and whose he was. I, I think that moves the needle a little bit more on what is solitude, but what, what is solitude? Is it a location? Is it intentional loneliness? We're in this series right now that's based on this conversation that happened between a mentor and a mentee, and, and the mentee said, what do I have to do to become spiritually healthy? And the mentor said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And for the past couple of weeks, we've just been poking at this idea of, do you feel hurried? Do you, do you feel this longing to just be unrushed and unanxious and to just be present where you are, unhurried? And as followers of Jesus, it's one thing to go, yes, I am hurried and I live in a hurried culture and everything in my soul is screaming, stop and slow down. It's a whole other project to go, how? What is it that I will actually do to try and, and do this? Um, we've been reading this book together, some of us. Uh, if this is your first Sunday back since the new year, it's definitely not too late to grab this and jump in. Uh, we've got some bookmarks, actually, that are out in the lobby that you can grab that just kind of have a reading plan that you can get caught up to. It's just super easy. Um, chatted with a friend this morning who said, yeah, we just bought it on an audio book, and we just listened to it at home as we're making dinner. Super easy to listen to on an audio book, but you can just follow along. Um, the sermons are not like, let me just read to you chapter six. <laughs> it's a little bit different, but it will just help you track. But in that, um, he starts to turn the tide a little bit in this book, just like we're going to do today. And he starts talking less about what is hurry and how did we get here and why are we addicted to it? And now starts leaning into what do we do? And the first thing that he's going to hit and that we're going to talk about today is these two tools called solitude and silence. And it would be very self-helpy if we would look at anything and say, here's some good ideas that we came up with. But thankfully, we get to do something so much better than that. As followers of Jesus and as people who are checking out the claims of Christ, the first place that we look for anything in the human experience is, how did Jesus do this? Not just like living unhurriedly, not just solitude, like how did he do life? And then everything that I'm going to seek to do, I'm going to seek to emulate what I see him doing. That's like one of the most basic definitions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we're going to break this down. We're going to just dive in on one story. But if you were just to, like as a student of Jesus, just to read through the stories that capture him, there's four gospel stories. Every single one of them finds him doing one regular routine over and over and over. It shows up in Mark 1, it shows up in Luke 5, it shows up in Matthew 14, it shows up so many places, and generally the words that the writers will use are these. And he would go away to quiet places to pray. And then he did these things, and he did these things, and then he would go away to quiet places to pray. And then he would preach, and then he would heal, and then these wild things, and then he would go away to quiet places and he would pray over and over and over again. And one of the great things about Jesus that, that we get as, as readers today is that it wasn't just a one-man show. Jesus was very intentional that his role was going to be that of a rabbi, or in our words today, a teacher. 
he had these 12 students that he brought along, which really is just a metaphor. <laughs> like through their eyes, you can just kind of feel this like welcoming uh, invitation from Jesus of, hey, you're just like them. Come follow me. I want you to learn how I live. And the story that we're going to dive into today is one of these moments where we see Jesus giving away ministry, encouraging these students like, you can do the things I do, but then also showing them this rhythm. So if you brought your Bibles with you today, you can jump into Mark 6. That's where we're going to be hanging out. This is a hysterical point uh, in the book of Mark. We hit this in our series on Matthew last summer. But here's kind of the context of what's going on. For the first time, Jesus has been doing all this wild stuff, but this is really the first time where he's starting to give away ministry, giving away work to his, to his students. So he's called these 12 uh, guys together. He's put them in groups of two, so he's got the buddy system down, which is awesome. <laughs> he's given them authority, and now he's sending them out. So like to get you in the right frame of reference as we're jumping in, this is like the first day of orientation on a new job. It's like, okay, did everybody read their packets? Fantastic. Does everybody have their assigned supervisor for the day? Great. Is everybody ready to go? Who brought their work boots? It's time for your first day of work. He sends them out. Amazing things are happening. I mean, I'm sure as Jesus is just hanging out at like a home base, he's hearing either from them running back to then go run back out, or he's just hearing from other people coming through. You should see the stuff these guys are doing. He's like, yeah, I know. It's pretty cool. Also, as he's sitting there, another runner comes and says, hey, your cousin, John the Baptist, uh, he was beheaded by the king. Weird news, hard news day in Jesus' house. Can you get into the feels of this story before we start reading where we're going to go? Jesus as a teacher, like if you've ever taught, if you've ever been around kids, there is a joy that you cannot express when you have taught them to do something, particularly something life-giving, and they start doing it on their own. Like for Jesus as a teacher, as he's watching his students take off and do the work, He's about as, I'm, he's just busting buttons. He's so pumped about where they're at. Then he gets this news about his cousin. And, and the foreboding thing that we know about John the Baptist, his cousin, is that Jesus is following in his footsteps. And this would have been for Jesus a reminder, hey, I'm actually headed towards that same place. Capital punishment at the end of the day. If I choose to continue the work that I'm doing and then, to pull the thread all the way through, there has to be this moment for Jesus where he goes, these, these students that I love, I'm so proud of, and I'm hearing about all the work that they've been doing, I am sending them off to slaughter. I am training them to do the thing that will ultimately kill them. It's a pretty wild chunk of scripture we're about to dive into. And to make sure that we paint it all the way through, like, I don't think we have a sad, depressed Jesus. I think we just have a Jesus who's like setting his teeth. He's got his shoulders down. He's highly focused because he also knows this. I am training my students how to be the most fully alive. And I'm training them, even as I'm hearing this news about my cousin, even as I'm thinking about my own death and their death, I am reminded that there is life after this broken place. Let's go. I love it. And then we get into Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And it goes like this. 
This is all, the, all his students coming back. They call them apostles. These apostles gathered around Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. You can just, it's like, it's like a, a sixth grade girl's slumber party. Just, ah, here's all these amazing things that have happened. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. Which makes no sense to anybody who's an entrepreneur. Like, we caught this wave, we're riding this wave, like, it's time to press. We can go, like, we can expand even further, we can pyramid scheme this thing. Let, and Jesus is like, okay, hey, great job, everybody, great first day of work. Okay, your next task is stop. Stop doing all of it. We're not going to do any more of that today. Come away to a deserted place. Which for us is like, that's strange. If you're one of Jesus' students, again, you're going, this makes absolute sense because this is what Jesus does. He does ministry and then he goes away to quiet places to pray. So in this already, you're watching a master teacher, somebody who doesn't just say, hey, here's what you should do, but somebody who's saying to his followers, to his students, to us, you've watched me, now come do it with me. Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going. This is other people. And, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and they recognized them and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and they arrived ahead of them. And so as he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that we may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for ourselves to eat. So to repaint this picture, they have been going gangbusters. They come back, they're so excited to share all these things that they've seen and done with Jesus. Jesus says, let's go away to a deserted place. They get in a boat and as they're going across this little chunk of lake, all these people in these surrounding villages see like, oh, that's Jesus and that's his crew. Those are the ones who, like they have incredible things to tell us about God. They can heal people. If we got, is there anybody here that's sick? Let's go, jump on the caravan. And, and by the time they get to this deserted place, it's no longer deserted. And people are just, are wanting to hear from Jesus. They're wanting to experience Jesus. And I'm sure at this point, it says Jesus had compassion on them. Like the word here in the Greek is like he was moved in his guts. Like we, we, I have to, we have to do something, you guys. They pull together. They, they do some incredible ministry. At some point, his disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you said to go to a deserted place. <laughs> this is a deserted place. <laughs> Can you make it deserted again? That would, be, that would be fantastic because we're hungry, which is a really funny motivation. I mean, at this point in their story, they're just like, we haven't had time to eat. We've been going super hard in the paint. Like, can we just get something to eat and take a nap? And the story goes on a little bit more. There's a couple pieces of context that we get. Jesus is going to end up taking a couple loaves of bread and feeding this massive crowd. This was a funny story for me this week as I was reading it because of how this story ends. I always pictured these stories where Jesus is feeding these thousands of people as like, everybody come and like throw out your blanket. We're going to have a picnic. We're going to hang out for a while, have some stories. Listen to how this, this story ends. This is so funny to me. Mark 6, we're going to be in verse 42. All ate and they were filled and they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces, which were the leftovers, and of the fish. 
And those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. And immediately his disciples got into a, uh, he made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the, while he dismissed the crowd. And after saying farewell to them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Like, this is hysterical to me. They're, they're wrapping up the day. The hour was very late when his disciples come. They're like, this is a deserted place. It's getting late. We're hungry. They're probably hungry. Can you just send everybody home? So if you can picture this story now in your head, like the sun is starting to set. It is very clear that the end of this day is coming to a close. And the disciples are like, hey man, your final act is like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And, and as he's sending them, he said, hey, can, well, let me teach you one more thing. Feed them. And as the sun is setting, it's like the first drive through <laughs> They grab some bread and they're handing it to people as they're walking away in this story. And as the sun is finally setting, as they hand out the last crust of bread to the last person and as they're going down the street, he turns to his friends and he says, you guys, I am making you get in a boat. As your teacher, as the one who's trying to teach you a rhythm here, you have to get away to a deserted place to pray. So he gets them in the boat as he's saying goodbye to the last couple people. They head out to sea and then what does Jesus do? He buys what he's selling. He goes up on a mountain. And he prays. What would you be thinking if you were a disciple in this story? I mean, as a, as a follower, as a student of Jesus, to actually be in this place, what are the things that you're thinking about? I think, I think emotionally, like you're riding such a high. Like you can't believe that you're a part of this. If you're an introvert, you're like totally drained at this point. You have nothing left. If you're an extrovert, you're like taking everybody's waivers to go axe throwing because you're, you're just like, keep it going, this is amazing. I also think if it's me, emotionally, I'm wondering, like, I'm a fraud. My imposter syndrome is an all-time high right now because my self-knowledge of who I am and the messed up things that I've done and that I'm going to do and that I am doing, I don't have any business being this close to Jesus. I just touched somebody today and they were healed. I... I, I like my self-sabotage would just be creeping up. Lies would start to come back into my story, things that I've believed that are not true, but for a long time. Spiritually, I, am, I think I'm wondering, can it get any better? Like, have I peaked too early at this point as, as a lover of God? My batteries are drained. I don't know where I'm gonna get any more spiritual energy from, but my connection to God and the world around and my friends who I'm doing this ministry with is so good and also wondering, is he going to keep using me? Because I'm a sinner. I'm <laughs> messed up. And physically, we know that they're just hungry. <laughs> they're just starving. All they want is like, just get me a snack. Like that, that's the one thing on their mind. Your body cannot keep up this pace if you keep going like this. My body would be commanding me to sleep. I would be like fighting the fetal position at this point. I can't give any more would be on my lips. And as an aside, I think as long as we're looking at Jesus as a teacher, one of my favorite things, I, I, I'm so excited to highlight this. this. This just got me this week. Is that at one point, Jesus' students had come to him and said, so, and go away to these quiet places. Like, we want to do what you do. But Jesus, when you go off by yourself and you pray, like, what do you pray? Like, how do, how do we pray? What are we supposed to say? What are the words? 
And I, I just want you to know, like, if you're new to this thing, this idea of prayer, this idea of solitude, like, there is not a formula of you do X and Y and Z and boom, you're connected to God. Like, that's not, that's not necessarily how this works. And this is one of those moments as a teacher where Jesus was highly prescriptive. And he said, well, yeah, let me, I, can, I can teach you a prayer. And it starts like this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. You can find the rest of this prayer in Matthew chapter 5, but that's, those lines are enough for us, for our project today. Because if you stop in that moment, we're now going to start to capture some of the essence of what Jesus was after when he said, go away to deserted places to pray. Go away to deserted places and let the first words out of your mouth be these, our Father. Which, when you translate it from the original language, it's not like Father feels kind of like this cold thing. The word there is Abba, which in a Middle Eastern culture, that translates more to like daddy or papa, or dad. So you've been working so hard. You got nothing left. You're starting to wonder who you are if you can keep going at this pace, how messed up you are and how good things are happening out of a messed up person. Go away to a quiet place and I want you to start with this. Hey dad. That's this rhythm that Jesus is teaching his students. And if we're paying attention, it's a rhythm that we should be watching as students too. This idea of solitude is not simply this idea of make sure you got snacks and naps and chill. And I'm so prone to believe that that's what it is. Something in me wishes that's all that it was. And it's weird. Because when I hear this, there's a part of me that warms to it, and I think if I'm honest, and I don't know if you're this way, there's also a piece of me that recoils a little bit of like, ugh. When I've been going that hard, when I've been living in a life and in a world of hurry, I just want to be alone. I, I don't know that I want another conversation. And as I was processing this week, like, why, why is that? Why, why do I feel that way sometimes? I think as I read poetry, I think as I read the news, I think as I experience the world around, I think I'm just continuing to realize more and more every day to be alive in this world means that you will hurt. Emotionally, you will hurt. Physically, you will hurt. I'm just trying to get by. Isolation means that I'm not trying to survive anyone or anything more because I finally found time in my schedule to hide a place that feels safe. And there's an irony, a paradox really in this, because when I isolate, I, I think that I can self-soothe, but the facade starts to wear off its permanent promise pretty quickly, because it doesn't last. Isolation doesn't keep me safe. <laughs> it leaves me with myself. And I don't know about you, but I can be a pretty gnarly self-critic and so then, because of that, often what I do in isolation is I want to make sure that I drown out that inner voice. And so I shut it up with things that keep me distracted. Isolation means that I can hide from everyone. It means that I can go find other stories, other people's stories, other made-up stories, whether this is through a book, through TV, through online streaming, through social media. I can engage something else I can dream of a world where things are safe and adventurous. I can bide my time until adulthood or a school schedule or a calendar forces me out the door again. 
T.S. Eliot once said this, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Do you find that to be true too? Because I do. Life is hard. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Some of it's in me. A lot of it is around. And if I stop long enough to engage it, it hurts. Uh, Comer, I think, is the one who said this. Can we put up that slide? Do I have? Yes, good. This is the author of the book that some of us are reading together. He said this in a sermon that he did a while back. The path of transformation is learning how to be with our pain, our anger, and deepest fears, and let God be with us so that new life can emerge in and through us, so that we can become a non-anxious presence, men and women of peace who are anchored in Jesus and who are not alarmed. And though we are in a culture of outrage and so much fear, we can offer the gift of peace. If I engage solitude, I have to engage another voice. Will God's voice be like the voices I've been with all day? Voices that make me compete for my value, that make me prove my belovedness to somebody else, the critics and the enemies who want to tear away at me? What if there is a voice of discipline or correction that I hear from God? Can I handle that right now? What if it gives me more to do or more to feel? Now if I'm confronted with the kind of God that I know, really what I'm starting to ask, and this depends on how I understand God to be, is I, am I signing up for time now with a tyrant? Is it time with a taskmaster? Is it time with a distant and aloof father? Does he care? Is he mad? Is he there? And on the contrary, what if time with that voice is time with a source of all kindness and goodness and love. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of God. And I think this is why. Because when you get alone with him, your understanding of who he is informs the voice that you hear. Robert Mulholland, another fantastic book, if you want to learn more about some of these spiritual practices, said this in his book, Invitation to a Journey. The practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is a reversal of the whole processing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. So what is solitude? Uh, we've been married for 17 years. We have three kids. We got to go on a date this weekend. It was awesome. Sometimes I think culturally, when we think of solitude, we actually think of isolation. This idea that I've just, I've been around the world, I've been around all these people, I just need some time. And so I'm going to remove myself from all of that. And I'm going to hope that that breathes some new life back into me that re recharges my batteries. And I would posture and posit and hope for you that we have a better definition of what solitude is and what it does. Because at the end of the day, solitude is taking who I am and becoming aware of something that's real all the time 
that I am so prone to forget. Solitude is becoming aware of a God who covers all things, who is in all things, who has made all things all the time. And for a moment, it's reminding myself, I can be just with him. I can be in him. I can enjoy him. That's what solitude looks like. It is a relationship. It's kind of like a date. Let's go away together and have a conversation. And I love Superman's Fortress of Solitude. It, it's a place to remind myself of who I am and where I came from and whose I am. Solitude is better seen as being aware of my relationship with God, which is the ultimate reality. Somebody once said it like this. Why is it so important that you're with God and God alone? It's important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To take time in solitude is to, be, is to let that voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and let that voice resound in your whole being. So what is solitude? Is it a location? Is it intentional loneliness? I would say this. Solitude is a movement into the reality that no matter where I go, God is there. And that always he is inviting me to be present but seldom to the present but seldom received intimacy of enjoying him. For those of you that are in life groups, uh, you'll get to spend some time reading Psalm 139 this week. And it's this psalm that just talks about, like, God, you're everywhere. Like, I can't go anywhere where you are not. Solitude is becoming aware of that presence. So, what do we do with this? These are really great, like, fun thoughts. They're great to think about. I don't know very many who would say, I disagree, I don't like this, people shouldn't live this way. The hard part is, how do we actually do it? Like, that's just, that's wicked hard, especially in the world that we live in. So, here's some just practical things for you. Uh, the first thing, again, we're reading this book. There's a workbook that accompanies it. It's online. If you're interested in this, you don't even have to read the book to like get a lot out of the workbook. But on the QR codes on the back of your chair, it's one of the links right now. You can just go find it and start flipping through it. It's not too late to read the book with us. But here's some practical things. Schedule it. <laughs> I think in my own experiences, it's like, that's a good idea. I will get to that as soon as there's margin in my schedule and all of a sudden it's next week. <laughs> schedule it. When are you going to do it? When do you want to do it? Is morning the best time? What about your like 20-minute lunch break at work? Could you do something intentional then? Are you a nighttime person? And locate it. Where is it? If, if you can make this location the most distraction-free location possible, your chances of this being a life-giving time are just so much better. Uh, one thing I've learned too is phone a friend. <laughs> when I go away, especially for extended times of solitude, it's, it's paradoxical, but to go with somebody, like one of my favorite places is a coffee shop in Lyons. It's called the Stone Cup. I will go with a friend. We will sit in opposite corners of the Stone Cup for a couple hours. We'll get back together in the car and on the drive home just talk about like what happened in your time. I love it. And then here's, here's some other things for you. You can choose your level of depth on how frequently and how long do I want to do this for. So here's level one. Level one is don't do anything different this week. 
Some of you might just be checking things out. You're new to this whole God thing. Maybe this is too much. Or maybe you're just like, I'm just not ready for time alone with God yet. That sounds overwhelming. And I just want you to hear, that's okay. You know who still loves you? God. You know who is still 100% available and present to you when you're ready? God. It's pretty wild. He won't force himself on you. He's a gentleman. He's the kind of dad that you've always wanted. He's completely open to giving you the ability to choose whatever you want, but even more happy to offer direction and freedom and truth and beauty if those are the things that your soul craves. So you can do nothing. The next level, if you want to choose your depth, would be 10 minutes. Find 10 minutes this week. You, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. You just have to make yourself available to God and trust that he really is there. Maybe this is next Saturday. Did you schedule it? Maybe this is tomorrow night. Is it in your house or is it in a coffee shop? Plan it before you go to bed tonight, but just start with 10 minutes. You could also, another layer, if you're like, I've done that before, I'm used to that, but like, what would be the next thing? I think, obviously, it's like build a rhythm in, in the week in and week out, two to three days this week. When are you doing it? Your aim is repetition and consistency. And then I think if you're like, I'm doing those things, is there more? The invitation would be, what would it be like to take a whole day, every quarter, and just go away for the whole day? And you might be thinking like, okay, that sounds great. I can like choose my level of depth here. I know kind of which one I feel ready to do next, but what do I do? And this again is where I would say, man, I, I love John Mark Comer and this book that he's written and the simplicity of this workbook because there's so many things that you can do. But he busts it down to like, here's three options. There's something called a breath prayer. There's something called a listening prayer. And there's a practice called Lectio Divina, which is a fancy Latin way of saying, read your Bible and spend time with God. <laughs> and in the workbook, he walks through, here's exactly how to do each one of these things. Just try them out. It's like test driving a car. Does this work as a way for you to connect with God? Just, just try one. And those are all in that workbook. Um, one quick aside that I do, I just, it's so near and dear to my heart and in my experience we had a staff meeting this week where we were talking about silence and solitude, and one of the things, especially some of our older staff said was, man, couldn't do this when I had kids, but now that we're, you know, empty nesters. To those of you who are parents of littles in the crowd, and we, like, are just leaving the stage, but oh my goodness, God bless you. You might be hearing all this going, man, time by myself where nobody's touching me or screaming in my ear or throwing spaghetti at me? Like, sign me up. Also, that's impossible. That does not exist anywhere. My encouragement to you would be plan it. Uh, you can t tell people, my pastor once told me to give my kids away. Yeah, you should just like kick them out for a little bit. You can have these things called babysitters. They're awesome. But you can act like, this is a date. Get a babysitter and go on a date. And I think in this too, and this is one of the things where I just marvel at the church and my heart longs for the future of, of where we are and where we're going. For those of you that are empty nesters enjoying the trappings of solitude at will, we need you. This is one of those places where the church becomes beautifully the church. If you're an empty nester and with your, uh, with your biological family, just know that your church family here, we still have a bunch of kids for you to continue to raise. Are you 60? Because we've got a ton of 30-year-olds rolling up in this place, and they need the gift of time. 
Are you 70? I've got a bunch of 50-year-olds who need to be shown the deeper storehouses of solitude that you might be hanging out in consistently. Are you 25? So I've got some 14-year-old kids who are dying for a role, a role model. Ugh, kids, get me every time. They're dying for a role model who would take them out on a date and look them in the face and smile and say, how are you? If you're a part of this church family, whether you have littles, whether you're older, whether you're young, there are opportunities for us to free each other up to experience this better together. And you are invited. Let me bring out the band because I just, I want to underscore the big thing in this whole time that we've had together. This is an invitation to relationship, to know God, to take part in a dance that's already happening between the three members of the Trinity and to get swept up into that community as somebody who's not only welcomed, but who belongs there. Religion will give you a list of to-dos. Romance invites you into intimacy. We engage and encounter solitude on purpose because we believe that God loves us and wants us to expand that experience of love. Are you ready to dance? Consider solitude. It's time with dad. It's a daddy date, just the two of you. Parker Palmer had this beautiful vision that he recorded in just a simple quote, and I'll end with this. The soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out, but if we're willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two by the base of a tree, the creature we're waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness that we seek. Take time with dad. Go on a daddy date. Make it a part of your lifestyle. It's not just to try it out this week. There's an invitation from the rabbi. Learn my way. Go just the two of you and enjoy each other and enjoy the world. And maybe as you do, you'll even catch a glimpse of the wild, beautiful soul that he intentionally put in you. We're going to get some time now to sing. And a lot of the songs we're singing today just stock of, God, here's who you are and what you're like. And for those of us that have poorly formed views of taskmasters or distant dads, let these words continue to inform the one who is saying, come spend time with me. Let's stand and sing together.